Um, let's see, where were we? I guess I asked you if you'd ever been close to, you know, a life-threatening situation in a fire. Can you talk about that again? Oh, God, it was about three o'clock in the morning, fire on the third story of an apartment. We didn't have anything showing when we got there. A little, little wisp of smoke or something from a balcony. Not much of anything. So we just put our breathing apparatus on. We get up there and there's smoke really, really pushing out of the uh, the door. Three o'clock in the morning, if somebody's not out in front of their burning building, then somebody's probably still in there. And so we kicked the door in, forced entry, and went on in, and wandered around the apartment for a while. A good flashlight will penetrate the smoke a little bit, but I mean, you literally can't see nothing. I got into one area where I got lost ran into what I thought was another one of the firemen and the light beam was flashing back at me and I go up to meet who it is to kind of orient myself as to where I am and I ran into a glass mirror. It was my reflection that I had seen. Oh shit, okay, I'll turn around and go this way. So I turn around and walk around a little bit more where I thought I was coming from and ran into another fireman. Once again, it was me. The breathing apparatus is supposed to last 15 or 20 minutes, but under heavy load, you suck that air up real quick. And it was real frightening because I knew my air was low. The door kind of sucked itself shut because of the force of the fire in the other room. It was a real kind of a panicky thing, and you could hear the fire going pretty good because by then it had broken a window out and gotten some oxygen. Finally, I kicked the toilet or something, going around trying to get out of this, what I found out that was a bathroom at this point. I made another turn, and now what I see is the reflection again. I realize, okay, it's another damn mirror. But on the opposite side of me also was another mirror above the medicine chest, so it was just everywhere I turned. Let me just adjust this a little bit. How you doing? I'm good. I'm sitting with my producer, Ryan, going over some things and preparing for what will likely be my final call with John Orr. Have you ever asked him directly whether he did it? No. I know that I'm going to be touching third rails there, and I just got to be ready for the relationship to end. When I first met Orr in 1992... I thought he might be innocent. How, I thought, could you convict a man based on a novel? But now, at the end of this journey, I'm sure that John Orr is guilty. And I'm sure that his novel was more real than fiction. One last thing I want to ask you about that I noticed is this habit John has of saying we. What do you make of this? Interesting. I hadn't given it much thought, Ryan. We had a lot of freedom. We were on our own all the time. Nobody looking over our shoulders. Uh, we didn't take the position because we wanted to run around carrying guns or uh, beating people up or, or handcuffing people. In those instances, I just think, you know, he's always got a partner and he's projecting that it's a team, but it's really him. There were fire captains who always accused us of bringing in incendiary devices or matches in our pockets when we went in to look at a fire scene. And looking at some of your calls, he does it when it's not even about 
investigations, or anything else. He does it when he means I. We've got a brand new guy in my cell right now who likes to talk to himself. And he has to be reminded, stop holding conversations with yourself. We're trying to study. We're trying to watch TV. We have to try and get along with whoever it is we are paired up with. It's just something that I've noticed in his speech pattern. I had really not given it much thought. Now that you mention it, is it the two sides of John Moore? Over the course of this podcast, we've talked to a lot of people about John Orr, and any discussion of why he might have done what he did centers around an idea, that there was not just one John Orr, there were two, the arsonist and the arson investigator. I've heard some version of this idea from most of the people we've talked to, like Moses Gomez, who worked with Orr investigating the College Hills fire. John placed himself outside of who he was, like, okay, I'm an investigator like you are, Moses, but I'm not that guy who started that fire. That's another guy. Or Sandra Flannery, who helped prosecute Orr for the College Hills and Ole's fires. It was very much a Jekyll and Hyde situation. He was supposed to be the protector, but he was the perpetrator. Or Doug Stobbs, his former partner. John was the kind of guy in my gut I could not trust. Uh, I thought there was a real secretive thing about him. He was hiding something. And this idea of two John Orrs is most obvious in his book, Points of Origin. Orr created two main characters, a serial arsonist named Aaron Stiles, who wreaks havoc on the city of Los Angeles, and his nemesis, an arson investigator named Phil Langtree, who Orr says is based on himself. But now I believe that Orr is both characters at the same time that Points of Origin isn't just a confession. It's a window into a conflict raging inside or between the firebug and the arson investigator who wants to stop him. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Firebug. Or used the fires as the basis for a novel. The man arrested was himself an arson investigator, perhaps a man who had a terrifying split personality. It's the ultimate thrill-seeking. I'm going to confess in a book about what I've been doing for the past five, seven years. I looked at the book that same way, going, oh my gosh, what if this is real? What if it's just like that? I am reading my case, having been written by the suspect. It's in first person. I had no fear that I would be a suspect, or else I wouldn't be writing. Chapter 10, Jekyll and Hyde. Boy, here it is. So it would have been right here where these dumpsters are probably, right? My producer Ryan and I are visiting an alley in Burbank, California, behind the former location of a store called Bell Cottage. Back in episode two, I told you how the owner, Sheila Bell, opened the back door of her store here to find her Lexus on fire. She came out back here to see what was happening and there was a, a guy standing here watching it. He claimed he was, you know, with the sheriff's department. Years after that fire, federal agents showed up at Sheila Bell's door. They showed her a photo lineup and asked if she recognized the man who had been standing there that day. 
she picked a photo of John Orr. You know, he was watching this fire and then he jumped the fence like he was gonna go warn the people in the building about the fire. The motivation there is so pathological. You know, his desire to be the hero of his narrative, it seems pretty likely that he created a nemesis in himself in order to give that hero somebody to combat with. The fire at Bell Cottage wasn't Orr's biggest or most important, but to me, it's evidence of the idea of two John Orrs, one who sets fires and one who wants to be the hero. Want a cup of coffee? Yeah. Today, Ryan and I are driving around the Glendale area, visiting the different places where John Orr set fires. The idea is to put ourselves in Orr's shoes and to see all the things we've heard about over the past two years with our own two eyes. Next stop, a tour of the College Hills neighborhood with former California State Fire Marshal Moses Gomez. Moses, I'd like you to meet Carrie and Bones. Hey, Moses Gomez, glad nice to, meet to meet you. you too. You might remember that Gomez assisted Orr in the investigation of the College Hills fire. This is the first time that I've come back. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we take my car? I got more room. Which way you want to go? Here's. Let's go this way. Okay. Right here. Yeah, the whole neighborhood was on fire. There, it was moving fast. It was windy. You could see the embers flying across. Let's go this way and see. If we can this was the neighborhood where Orr said he jumped into action to help save houses. He described this situation where he got up on a roof with a garden hose and started like watering down the roof. And if I had to guess that he did get up on a roof, but he wanted to see what was going on and how the fire was progressing. He's not here to help anybody. He's helping himself, helping whatever he's getting off on. At the end of the tour, we drove back down to the bottom of the hill to the point of origin, the place where over 30 years before, a woman looked out her window and saw a man roughly matching Orr's description get out of his car and drop something in the grass. Was the place where she saw the person start the fire the same place where John Orr found all of those lighters? Well, based upon what she told us, would place the person near and around the area of origin. Moments after that, the fire took off, spreading up the hill. And the woman looking out her window saw the man who started it run toward her apartment building, screaming for people to get to safety. And I have to wonder, what was John doing? Maybe he saw that the fire he just started was getting out of control. Maybe this was the two John Orr's fighting with each other. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. I'm in the College Hills neighborhood of Glendale, California, with my producer Ryan, visiting the site where John Orr set a brush fire that burned over 60 homes. One of the most interesting things that I've come across in this entire thing is... You know, after the College Hills fire, he was interviewed and he said, I don't think the arsonist meant for the fire to get this big. Well, maybe that's something I should ask him about. Definitely. This call is now being recorded. After the College Hills fire, you made a comment to the press that you didn't think that the arsonist had meant to set off that major fire. Do you remember saying that? vaguely remember something to that effect, yes, but my intention was just to demonstrate that that same stretch of uh, Rudigo Road had also experienced accidental and arson fires through the years. It turns out that Orr is right about this. At his murder trial, it was pointed out that for years, someone had set fires along that stretch of road near the point of origin of the College Hills fire. Of the day of the College Hills fire, uh, winds were, were down and not doing anything at all, and all of a sudden they would gust up. An arson is setting a fire along that stretch again. If he'd done it before, this guy did not plan on doing a fire of that magnitude. Orr talks about the College Hills arsonist as though he's another person. But all I hear is him talking about himself. He wanted to set a small fire like he had along that stretch of road so many times before. But it got out of hand, so he ran to warn the residents of that nearby apartment building. After the College Hills fire and Orr's arrest, the arson fires that had been happening for years along that side of the road stopped altogether. Every time I speak with Orr, he convinces me further of his guilt. So I decided to get back in touch with someone who was convinced of Orr's guilt from the first time she heard his voice. My former boss, Sheila Nevins. You have been obsessed with this from the beginning. It, it, I think it's it, about you as much as it is about him. Well, in it, the it, sense it, that you're nuts what, too. We're all nuts. <laughs> I'm especially nuts. The thing is, I embrace it. Isn't he in jail? Isn't yeah, he in jail? He's in jail? I've been talking to him. Does he say he did it or he still says he didn't still do it? Still in denial. Maybe you know, he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know he did it. I wonder, Carrie, how many guilty people truly think they're innocent and that this is a personality disorder of some kind. He was a different person, another person. I don't know. How can you be, you know, Dr. Jekyll by day and Mr. Hyde by night unless you separate the two? Interesting. You know, in the book, he has two characters, the arson investigator, Phil Langtree, and he has the arsonist, Aaron Stiles. I think his image of himself is Phil Langtree, but I do think that his Mr. Hyde is Aaron Stiles. Does he hate the arsonist or is he empathetic to him in the book? Both. 
That's probably how he feels about himself. Maybe that's how you live with yourself when you have a certain kind of morality. But in fact, you're a killer. Why do you think he would write this novel? To get caught. In the last chapter of Points of Origin, the arsonist, Aaron, has one final face-off with the arson investigator, Phil Langtree. And in a way, what happens in the ending predicted what would ultimately happen to John Orr and seems to confirm Sheila's theory of why he wrote the novel in the first place. Going down to the ending, can you tell me how you came up with that ending? Well, the, the final scene, and I hate to give away the ending of my book. I'm trying to sell books here. That last chapter takes place inside of a burning building. It pits both the Aaron character and the Phil character. He's trapped in the fire as well. Phil reached down and slid up his pant leg and in a quick motion felt his 45 fill his right hand. He looked to his left and saw Aaron staring at him with a horrified look on his face. Before Phil could say a word, Aaron ran and was out of sight. Styles, Phil started to speak as he heard a low whooshing sound behind him. Turning to his escape route, only thick black smoke could be seen pouring into the room. Phil, panic-stricken, stepped away from the advancing smoke to the only place he could go, the warehouse where Aaron was hiding. Phil froze as he stepped into the aisle with his gun raised. Aaron was only 10 feet ahead with his gun pointing too. Phil could see tears streaming down Aaron's face as the smoke and now tremendous heat slapped against his side near the door. They stood for a second, Aaron's gun dipping slightly, the smoke hiding it briefly. In the next split second, Phil saw Aaron's face change and the gun barrel raising to point at him. The sound of two quick shots exploded from Phil's 45 before he even knew it. Aaron's body dropped to the ground in a pile as Phil turned to his escape route. He dropped to the floor, finding little relief from the ugly black death swirling around him. The heat was unbearable, and Phil crawled across to the door leading into the inferno beyond. The book ends with Phil Lankry killing the Aaron Stiles character. That's the old Mexican standoff. Phil stalls for a moment or two because he doesn't want to take a life. But as soon as the barrel of Aaron's gun comes up, he has to fire. It brings it all together in that, that final act where Phil is forced to kill the antagonist. Points of Origin ends with Phil Langtree recovering two cigarette match devices from the blackened corpse of Aaron Stiles, proof that connects Aaron to all the arson fires that have happened in the book. In real life, Orr's signature device was a clue to investigators that one person was setting fires across the state. 
but it was his book that tied those fires together, leading to Orr's capture and his ultimate conviction. It all comes down to one question. Was John Orr caught, or did he catch himself? What do you think happens to that side of him when he's incarcerated? It's like you want to buy an expensive dress, but if you don't go to the department store, you can't buy it, right? Physical deprivation probably deprives the brain of the stimulation necessary to carry on another act. So there must be a kind of relief in being there, a certain gratitude for incarceration on some level because it stops that other part from behaving as it would. In 1984, Orr lit the fire at Ole's home center that killed four people. And for six years after that, he terrorized Southern California. But after the College Hills fire, he told the media that the arsonist probably hadn't intended for the fire to get as big as it did. Maybe somewhere inside, he realized that the arsonist side of him had gone too far. So the arson investigator in him started writing a novel. Less than a year later, he finished his manuscript for Points of Origin and started sending query letters to publishers. My novel is a fact-based work, he wrote, that follows the pattern of an actual arsonist who has been setting fires in California over the past eight years. He has not been identified or apprehended and probably will not be in the near future. He was advertising what he had done. Eight months later, he was arrested. Orr has been in prison for 30 years. For 30 years, he hasn't been able to set a fire. If there really were two John Orrs, the arsonist and the arson investigator, it seems that like Aaron Stiles in his book, the arsonist side of Orr is dead. And by writing the book that led to his arrest, maybe John Orr killed that side of himself. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This call is now being recorded. Hey, John. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm good. This is going to be a little noisy here for a minute with people coming and going. Okay, so today is is going to be a little bit different. I spent the week kind of going through everything that I've accumulated. And I'm, what I'm going to do is tell you some of the conclusions that I've come to and it's going to take me a minute to lay it all out. So if you would just bear with me on it. Oh, okay. Back in 92, you said this was a setup, that you were set up. The evidence was fabricated, lost, stolen, misplaced. These guys are just totally destroying me, my career, my life, my family. The fundamental conclusion 
that I've come to is that I think you were right at that time. I think you were set up. I think your first instincts on the Oli's fire were right. I think the fire was set by a serial arsonist. I think it was the same person setting fires around L.A. that time, the Frito Bandito, as I think you called him. The L.A. County Sheriff's called it an accidental fire, even though there was two potato chip fires on each side of it. It was not an accidental fire. You told me back in 92 that the arsonist was upset that Oli's was ruled an accident and probably went on to set another fire at a North Hollywood store a few days later. There was a similar type fire, and it seemed that they were related. Maybe that was just the guy's way of thumbing his nose up or something. I think you were right about that. I think the same arsonist went on to set the brush and car fires in Glendale in 85 and 86, the coin tosser, as I think he was called. He left a coin attached to some of his devices. It appeared that he had some kind of experience with doing this or knowledge of how to set fires. So I just started working on the theory, well, maybe it's a fireman. You told me that guy could have been a fireman, and I agree with that. I also believe that the same arsonist set those fires around the Arson Investigators Conference in Fresno. And I think you were onto something in your book that the real arsonist was a fireman who attended that conference. Aaron had attended the annual conference for years. He was fascinated by the topics at the meetings and learned much about his adversaries. I think he was the guy who did the coin tosser fires, and I think he was the guy who set Oli's. Aaron had already killed five people in one of his fires. It was someone who attended both of the arson conferences, someone who's very competitive, who wanted to prove that he was smarter than the best police detectives and arson investigators. Their statements were basically, nobody can be that good. Uh, but my response is, I am that good. John, I think it was you. I think it was you who set yourself up. You set yourself up by writing a book about it. I think you gave yourself away when you were insistent that Oli's was an arson fire. And when you went away to prison, the fire stopped. And they never started again. Back in 92, when we first started talking, I, I thought you might be innocent. I was really hoping you were innocent. But to believe you're innocent now, I have to believe that you're the victim of incredibly bad luck or an elaborate conspiracy. And I just don't. I want to believe there's a part of you that hated what you were doing, that you didn't mean to hurt anyone, and you felt and feel horribly about the deaths in the Oli's fire. I don't expect you to confess or tell me why or admit to any of this or acknowledge any of it, but if you have anything to say, I think you should say it. Well, you're throwing a lot of information out there, a lot of it ancient information that has since been disproved and can be disproved. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't elaborate on something I said 30 years ago in my living room to you, I don't know what you're relying on, but, uh, you know, you've presented me with a lot of information. You know, there's too many, too many things to defend here. I wanted to take the opportunity to tell you the conclusions that I've come to after 30 years of looking into this, that I 
have come to this conclusion that there's some aspect of you that essentially set yourself up. Okay. So for now, this is it. You don't need me to call you next week? Um, well, wh- why don't we do this? Why don't we put a pin in you calling me for three weeks and um, have a chance to think about it, and then we can talk about it at that time? Okay. Bye. Yeah. Hey, Kerry. Hey, Ryan. <laughs> okay, how did it go? Uh, I was super nervous, but it kind of went as I expected it to go. One of the things that's interesting about John Orr is that he goes out of his way not to lie. He doesn't reflexively deny anything. What he goes to is, well, that's disprovable, but he won't deny because then he'd be lying. And John Orr, I think, finds it very stressful to lie. And then at the end of it, he just sounded sad that the dialogue seemed to be coming to a close. And when I heard that kind of disappointment when he asked whether we're talking again next week, I thought, well, I'm happy to continue the conversation if if you are. And so that's why I set it for three weeks from now. How do you feel about that? I feel really relieved to finally have articulated what I've felt for a long time to him. And at the same time, you know, I I guess there's a certain sadness in the idea that there's a a human being that caused as much damage and tragedy as John Orr did, and that he can be in such deep denial about it, and yet be so starved for a conversation companion that he's willing to absorb the indignities of having that person accuse him of being a murderer and still want to continue to talk to him. One thing we've talked about in the past is what's driven me to follow this case all this time. I am interested in human beings at their most extreme. And I I think that part of my long-term obsession with this case is that early in my career, I happened upon one of the most unusual cases of a human being operating at the very fringes of what's conceivable, an accomplished arson investigator, a novelist, and an arsonist. At this point, do you want to know why John did what he did? I mean... I think I'll know as well as I'll ever know. Let's put it that way. You can't really know. I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I've been a huge Bruce Springsteen fan for all my life. There's a Springsteen record called Nebraska that has a lot of songs on it about criminals. There's actually this song Nebraska about the Charlie Starkweather killings. It's written from Charlie Starkweather's point of view. One of the last lines in the song, wow, can you hear that thunder? Yeah, I can. On cue. One of the last lines in the song, Nebraska, is they want to know why I did what I'd done. 
I guess there's just a meanness in this world. Three weeks went by, and John Orr didn't call me back. I wasn't surprised. There wasn't much left for us to talk about. But well before our last call, I had put in an application for an in-person visit, and I never heard back. I figured my bid had gotten lost in the shuffle of prison system bureaucracy. But then, a letter showed up at my door. Inside was a notice. My visit had been approved. It had a yellow post-it stuck to it that read, Carrie, this issue is apparently moot. However, if my status changes via the appeal still active with the California Supreme Court, we may still chat. Signed, John Orr. This is the last episode of Firebug, and I want to thank you all so much for listening. But we're not completely done yet. Stick around for a couple of bonus episodes coming in two weeks. I think you'll find them fascinating. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Ryan Swigert, with help from Michelle Lance, Neil Denatia, and W. Harry Fortuna. Ryan Swigert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smerling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld and Ryan Swigert. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. I want to give special thanks to George Zaloom, Chris Cowan, Jay Miracle, Ted Braun, Tom Zimney, Karen Coburn, and of course, Sheila Nevins. And finally, one more special thanks to you. Thank you for staying with us all the way to the end.